everyone, I'm Hannah Lloyd. And I'm Charlotte Gilfillan. Welcome to our podcast, Women in Wellies. Each episode, we will be inviting a guest to share their stories, experiences and lessons of working and living in rural Scotland. We want to get to know the real women behind the wellies and share them with you, our listeners. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Women in Wellies podcast. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of introducing our guest, Lynn Cassells. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. We've been really looking forward to this. Um, How are you? I'm well, thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me to come on to this. It's great to sort of have some time to chat with you guys. Now, a lot of our listeners will know who you are already and some of the fantastic work that you're doing. But perhaps you can tell us a bit more about yourself and what you do. Yeah, so so this is all this all happened by accident. <laughs> That's the first part. So um so yeah, so I'm I'm Lynn. Um so my partner and I run uh Limbrett Croft, which is a sort of a, a small regenerative land holding about 150 acres in the Cairngorms National Park um in Scotland. Um and I sort of say it's kind of a, a wonderful accident in that um we kind of got into agriculture completely by accident and that we were living and working down in the south of England, working as rangers in kind of conservation roles. Um, spent a couple of years after that in the borders tree planting. And that was a really interesting time for us because um, in our own lives, we made this kind of transition from learning about conservation to actually learning about what people kind of most commonly term as rewilding. So, you know, looking at upland landscapes or anywhere really and looking at kind of restoring natural processes. And so really kind of got into that kind of world a lot more, um, which was quite interesting for us, started to question our food choices, started to question just our environmental impact in general. Uh, And at that time, we were looking for a wee bit of land, um, just five acres. That was the ideal, Uh, looking for about five acres of land to grow our own food, maybe have a few camping plots, uh, diversify a little, make what money we needed to pay the bills. Um, and anyway, kind of long as sort of it is, ended up at Limbrecht Croft, which is 15 times bigger, so 150 acres. Um, and I remember we arrived in the kind of March 2016 and we were looking at kind of all this land thinking, you know, what are we going to do? And, you know, the irony kind of of the sort of the transition to that point was that we thought, yeah, farming, this is what we've got to do. But it was trying to do it in a way where, you know, this was this was back in the day in 2016 when people really weren't talking about regenerative agriculture. You know, now it's such a popular term, right? But it wasn't really a thing back then, um, certainly not mainstream. So we started to try and carve out this model whereby we would have this kind of really diverse, multi-purpose landscape uh, with kind of farmed animals, but also where kind of nature was flourishing. So that's kind of how we got to where we are today and you mentioned rewilding um i often think rewilding has now become quite a generic term but what does it mean to you so for me rewilding is 100% about people like 100% about people you know often it can be misinterpreted i would say from my from my perspective it can be misinterpreted as something whereby we have to you know we the collective we of humanity have to restore nature because we've we've damaged it in some kind of way i think when we and then and then we sort of leave it i think um for me that 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 doesn't do anything other than build greater division between us as a species and the rest of nature, because we are essentially a part of nature. So for me, rewilding is all about getting people back onto the land. It's about getting people to reconnect with their food, reconnect with the life that we share on this planet. And then from that, healing naturally happens. Um, so that, that's entirely, that for me, that, that's exactly what it's about. 
And does that play a big part in your ethos at Limbrecht Yeah, I mean, I would say it probably does. You know, we've always had this draw to try and communicate what it is that we do. So we've always wanted to share our story, uh, share our thought process, share, you know, our learnings, our outcomes, all that sort of stuff. Um, and that's led us to obviously have, you know, social media accounts. We uh, we do tours. Uh, we run courses here seasonally. Um, and we do all of our sales are direct to the customer. So we're always trying to have those conversations and just really look at ways in which we can play our little role um, in, in, in kind of connecting people or, or providing an opportunity for people to collect with nature, but then also kind of empowering them to go off and, and share that message with others. So it's really, I guess, all about just trying to sped, spread that sort of positive dialogue rather than that sort of negative uh, wall building um, and just getting people to really, you know, fall in love with the land that we, we share all this life with. Having been on one of your tours earlier this year, it was it was a genuinely eye-opening eye-opening experience for me. Um, I obviously work in land management and have been trying to learn as much as I can about rewilding, about regenerative agriculture, what it means, what the principles are, how it can be applied in practice. And I just loved it. It was so insightful and you were incredibly honest in, in in how you talk about things and how you present the challenges that you faced and, and how Limbrick Croft has gone from um, what it was when you bought it to what it is now. Um, and one of the things I have to say that really sparked my interest was when you talked about tree hay. I I hadn't heard of that term before, having, having come on the tour. And... It has just absolutely fascinated me. And I've learned so much about where tree hay is used around the world and the different countries and different species and different animals. And it's been absolutely fascinating. But I mean, that for me is just one example of that message that you're spreading and that message that you're getting out there um, and how it is really sparking people's interest. Yeah, and I think you know th there was there was two two pieces of info or sorry two pieces of advice. Well, we were given loads of advice when we were starting up, but there was two main ones that we were given, and and one was work with what you've got, and that's the thing about you know whenever you're kind of living and working with nature, and we were in a position as well where when we moved to Limbrick we had no money at all, you know we had a debt to pay off, so really we didn't have the opportunity to invest in loads of infrastructure from our own funds, so we just had to work with what we had and that was one of the the kind of the things that led us down let's you know use that example of tree hay it was looking around at the landscape that we had you know and that's the other thing you know about uh, where we live and, and work is that I think from from what I've learned is that if you look at the land land holding that we have with sort of trained agricultural eyes you probably would think it was a bit rubbish, you know, because there's a lot of, uh, there's a very little imbi, it's mostly hill ground and bog and all that sort of thing. To us, it was the land of milk and honey. You know, we thought it was amazing. Um, and, and you know, when you look at tree leaves, you know, we, we saw them as an opportunity for, you know, providing shade and shelter for our cattle so we didn't need to build housing. Uh, we saw it as an opportunity as extra feed for the livestock, both in summer and the winter time. And, you know, I love tree hay because tree hay is something that, you know, we've done for, millennia you know with 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 keeping livestock you know we've harvested pasture hay we've harvested tree hay in the winter time so in the summertime to feed in the winter time so so for us it was another way just to kind of eke out everything that we had you know how can we reduce our bills how can we reduce what we have to buy in for the livestock and generate it here on site and tree hay is 
is a great is a great example of doing that. Yeah. So take us back then to when you first bought Limbretcroft and what you had then and what you have built now. So whenever we moved here, yeah, there wasn't an awful lot. <laughs> there was there was a little cabin, little wooden cabin, which is where we live. And there was an old stone barn or byre, as we call it. And that was derelict. It had half a roof on it. And then there was the old croft house uh, that was also derelict. And the only kind of agricultural infrastructure, and I put that in a kind of a quote unquote agricultural infrastructure, was there was a very kind of dodgy fence that ran around more or less the perimeter of the croft. Uh, and that was it. So um, I guess in the sort of to summarize it in the last seven and a half years, um, we've installed about uh, five kilometers of deer fencing, about eight kilometers of stock fencing. Uh, so we've created a proper kind of little network of field system now in the Croft. Uh, we've planted just over 30,000 trees, a uh, mixture of uh, sort of new forest uh, again which will all be inclusive of livestock once once the the forest is established we've uh, created uh, hedgerows we've created shelter belts we've planted you know we're planting orchards um what else have we done we haven't been twiddling our thumbs that much we've built a new barn we renovated the old buyer uh, we've installed a micro butchery on the croft so you know, I always say to people when they come on the on the tour, you know, Limbrek is a landscape in transition. It's a landscape in healing. And, um, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the transition between, you know, sort of commercial conventional agriculture as we do it now to, you know, how do we can how do we how do we transition to a point of where, you know, we're being truly regenerative or organic or however you want to describe it. And it's a process that takes a bit of time. So we're just a little bit of into that journey. Um, so we're working a lot on sort of building soils, um, you know, in, enhancing wildlife, you know, adding lots of biodiversity back into the croft. Uh, so the tree landscape that we're creating is all a part of that. Um, and then we've also uh, we've introduced livestock. So we've we have a, a small fold of Highland cattle. We have rare breed pigs. Uh, we have pasture hens and then we have hives of bees as well. And um, we've built two polycrubs. Uh, one of which we use to grow our own food. We've just built our second polycrub. That's going to be to grow small-scale commercial veg for sale. Um, and and again, I guess from the engagement side, we now have a, a kind of a regular uh, summer timetable of public tours. Uh, we also do some tours for private uh, tour companies, and uh, we run uh, two week-long courses as well, which is all about, we call it living off the land, how to farm. It's all about you know, I love that you picked up on our honesty um, when you came on the tour. And I think that's one of the things that we really do try to do because, you know, a lot of farming can happen behind closed doors. A lot of people who aren't in farming have no idea what happens in farming. So <clears throat> for us, it's an opportunity to share that with the wider public. And we talk about it honestly from a, these are the challenges, these are the opportunities, you know, this is, you know, all that kind of stuff we cover in our courses as well. So that's more or less filled the last seven and a half years. <laughs> One of the things that's perhaps been most inspirational in all this is that the two of you have done it yourselves. You've done all this work. You've done the hard graft. You've done the planning. You've done the applying for funding. You've done everything yourself. Um, and it's a real, I mean, it's a phenomenal testament to what you've achieved. Now, that's really kind of you. And I mean, I mean, yeah, reflecting on why why we've sort of taken that route to, to doing it all ourselves is, I guess, one hand, it was a confidence thing um, in that we didn't we weren't feeling very confident in what we were doing because a lot of it we were 
kind of almost making it up as we were going along. We were following our guts, you know, trying to think how how do we want this to look? Um, and as I say, back when we were setting Limbrek up, we didn't have the the sort of the access now to to what is this big, much bigger or much kind of faster growing regenerative agriculture movement. So we didn't really have anybody to look to much. Um, so, so I think in part that's one of the reasons why we just kind of tended to do it ourselves, and and I think as well, you know, as kind of Limbrek, as you know, as the work that we've kind of done has grown and people have become, you know, know more about it, we've also become quite protective of it as our own personal space, you know, as a home space. So um, it's another reason why we've probably kept a lot of it, you know, us doing it ourselves, because whilst we engage a lot and we have people here all the time. We also are very careful to have breaks in that, you know, and have, have your own kind of quiet space, your own kind of downtime. So that's probably a reason. That's probably the, the, the reason as to why we've both kind of, yeah, just kind of stuck at us two doing it ourselves. We're not total control, control freaks, don't worry. <laughs> as the croft has grown, as this business has grown, how have you personally, how have you grown as a person? How has this changed you? Yeah, um, gosh, in, in many ways that um, I, I don't think either of us ever expected because, you know, I sort of joke about it being an accident, but it, it really wasn't what the plan was. The plan was to buy a little bit of land, live that kind of quintessential idealistic, you know, good life that many of us dream of. Um, and, and that was the plan. And and I think, you know, we've gone on this kind of new trajectory uh, in a way where, you know, you know, we we did BBC Farming Life. You know, we've written a book. We've we've done we've done all this kind of other stuff, in in a while, kind of building up this little kind of trying to keep a fairly vibrant rural little business. And and it's been it's been nothing short of a massive roller coaster. There's been times when you know it's been really exciting. You know, when when everything kind of comes together and you get projects undergoing. You know, you maybe apply for a bit of funding and you get the money and then you can kind of do these projects and that's really exciting. But then there's times when, you know, it doesn't go to plan and it feels quite frightening. You know, um, I always describe for me getting into agriculture, it has been like, you know, has been relentless. So there are times when the good times roll and then there are times when it just one thing after the next just goes wrong. And, you know, you can start to feel quite isolated and quite overwhelmed by everything um, because, I think one of the things, you know, in farming and crofting is that you become so rooted to the land, don't you? You become so connected to the land and that includes the animals that are in your care. And so when when stuff really starts to go wrong, just that weight of responsibility sits so heavily on your shoulders. So we've gone through yeah, complete elation to, you know, to genuine kind of worry and fear um, and 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 I think both of that has kind of both of those things have really shaped us into respecting so much more um, people that work in farming and crofting. Um, I, I didn't I didn't get it before. Now I really do. Um, so so that's been a big kind of life changing thing. And I think as well, one of the things that it's really brought us closer to is our food so I I think maybe one of the things that you might have got on the tour is that we're, we're totally obsessed with food like totally obsessed with food it's pretty much all we talk about <laughs> you know we just we love food and it's become a bit of an obsession in terms of our own kind of personal physical and mental well-being as we've grown in that learning about the importance of food for keeping us healthy you know as as a form of medicine as a form of way of you know 
not just nurturing you know our gut microbiome but nurturing our our minds as well and so that's why we put so much time into growing our own food you know first and foremost we have this really abundant kitchen garden in a place where people thought nothing would ever grow you know we, we cultivate you know huge amounts of bi- you know abundance uh, by growing with nature and we thrive off of that like we totally buzz off of it and you know, then you kind of expand that out into the wider kind of landscape and, you know, the meat that we produce and all of that starts to feed into then the conversations that we have with people and just really understanding and really respecting just how important good food is for us. And it's been really interesting in the last few years. You know, I listen to uh, a lot of kind of podcasts to do with sort of well-being and I really enjoy ones on food. And the science that's now starting to come out that talks about the benefits of, you know, food that is grown with nature, that is, you know, free of chemicals, that is free of anything artificial that we put onto it, but that is grown in a way that genuinely gives us health. And that really excites me. I, that so excites me. And then to get people to come to the craft to share that message with them and then to really empower them to go off and grow their own food or source, you know, source more kind of locally grown produce or organic or regenerative, whatever, like they go off buzzing about it. And and so I really, yeah, that, that's been a, that's been a big kind of eye opener to us as well, I think. I, mean, I was just going to say, we, um, my, I'm very lucky that my partner grows a lot of our fruit and veg and stuff, you know, here at, at home, we've got a little small holding. And uh, yesterday we were out with friends and I'd made a picnic and I'd made, I just cut up some carrot sticks from the garden and they were all saying over and over again how like the carrots taste so different, they taste so fresh, they taste so good, but literally they're like harvested that morning, cut up and eaten and they just taste so different. And I think it's only really in the last probably, like this year we've had a real abundance of things like carrots and cabbages and it's only when you start to eat them that you start to realise actually how much better they taste and how artificial other things can taste and I think I'm just sat here thinking like what you're doing and bringing that to people and you know bringing people to the cross so they can see it they can taste it they can experience it is so important because in my in our own small way you know having friends having a picnic with friends yesterday and giving them those carrots and they're like oh I don't think I ever want to eat a supermarket carrot again and you're like well that's because it's full of chemicals and blah 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 but you know it's it's um I think it is it's that taste it's everything isn't it it's the taste it's it's all of that I just I'm totally totally loving it. I really need to come on a tour at Lindbreck <laughs> yeah yeah you do you do no it's it's great it's great to hear that and I think it's you know it's just sharing that learning and it's sharing it in a way you know I always say when people come to Lindbreck I don't have to I don't have to try and convince you of what we're doing you can kind of see it for yourselves and I think that's what's really powerful and it's like what you've just explained you you don't have to convince them that it tastes better they can taste it themselves and I think I think that's where the conversation does start to get really interesting of well how can we make this more mainstream you know how can we make this the the sort of the, f- the future of food or the future of uh of, of what's kind of nourishing us and making us healthy and I think that's when you know one of the th- the things that I've recently started to talk about um, at Limbrek is is explaining this how it's a, a landscape in transition because often there are, you know we'll get questions of you know how do you scale this you know and I always say well everything that we do has actually been taken from things that are done on much bigger scales so so there's loads of examples of how to do this at much bigger scale than what we're doing 
So that's the first thing. And I think the second thing is, is that, you know, we do have a lot of people to feed. Uh, equally, we waste a lot of our food. So we have to address that. We have to address, you know, how much we grow, uh, how we distribute it and, and, and start to kind of have those conversations. And, and then I think the next thing is to think about, well, how do we transition ourselves uh, from the way, you know, from more kind of chemical based farming to one which is truly regenerative, which is all about building soils where we're, we're not having to put these input, these artificial inputs into the land. How do we how do we do that? And it, it is a process of transition. You can't just stop one and start another. You know, it's a it's a it's a completely different way of growing and producing food you could argue so the landscape that you see at Limbrek is in that transition so it used to be you know it was traditionally crofted uh so you would have set stocked animals it would have been pl- the fields would have been plowed they would have been reseeded we would have had lime on the field you know the fertilizer and you know that takes time to transition a landscape and develop habitats develop different cropping systems develop different animal enterprises to then transition it into a truly regenerative landscape so we're seven years into that and I reckon it's probably not going to be until maybe year 25 or year 30 where you're really going to see abundance coming out of Limbrek um you know you'd have been here seven years ago there was no food produced here zero now we pretty much grow our own our own food we're producing thousands of eggs a year we're producing hundreds of kilos of pork hundreds of kilos of beef um, we're producing honey you project that 25 years into the future um once we've opened up all this area of woodland that we're trying to grow we're, you know you can see more animals playing an important part in there the cattle the pigs you know you're, you're almost doubling the size of, of 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 land that we can access um once our orchards start to produce once our uh, soft fruit uh, orchards start to produce you know you start to just see the thing kind of blossoming and blossoming so you know it's it, it, it's a transition point but I think, Hannah, that the thing that really kind of um, brings all of it back to, to, to us as humans is what I see when people come here is they just love it. They, they just connect with it. They, they, they stand in the kitchen garden and they're like, look at the size of that beetroot, you know, or and, and I'm like, yeah, and we're at 350 metres above sea level. We're facing all the prevailing winds. We're on deeply acidic soils. You know, we're at 57 degrees latitude. This shouldn't work, but it does. Um, and it's it's just about really kind of getting people to see that and experience that and then saying to them, what do you choose? What do you choose? What could you choose if you had the opportunity to buy or grow or source produce like this? Which would you choose? And I, I feel pretty confident that I know what the answer would be. Everything you've just said, Lynn about kind of all the why and the kind of seeing people standing in the kitchen garden going wow look at that beetroot grown here I mean we get the same like friends come over and they're like wow look at what you've grown here we're on the west coast in Ayrshire we're in a very exposed location you know Gary works very hard to protect stuff from the wind and all of those all of those things you know um and you know my my dad was here this weekend and I made salad on Friday night and he's like and I'm like that whole salad is homegrown the cucumber the peppers the tomatoes the lettuce and he's like really and I'm like yep yeah. and he's like I can't grow that in my house in Edinburgh do you know but I think that kind of response from people is I get the impression from what you're saying Lynn is part of what inspires you guys to keep going and to keep sharing what you're doing at Limbrek and to create that kind of community and all those things you know, again, working in farming and crofting, you know, it is relentless. Um, 
it's it, it's something and that's something that we've had to learn to to manage which we're getting better at we've not got it sorted yet but we're starting to learn learn much better to have a better work-life balance you know taking time off in the evenings going on holidays all that sort of stuff but it still can be you know hard going uh because you love it you know i i was up this morning you know i i we've got we've got some friends staying and i i was up this morning and it was about half seven and we've got some like we've got an old trailer and there's wheels on it that have been rusting and i've been meaning to do it for you know to kind of scrape the the rust off and paint them and at seven seven thirty this morning, I was out there in a midnet scraping the paint off the wheels, you know, to 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 kind of to scrape the rust off to to paint it. And I just thought, I don't need to be here right now, but yet I choose to be because I love it. You know, it's these little things that just draw you into it because it's it's not just it's not just a day job. It's it it is kind of a way of living too. So so I think so I think in the context of all of that though it can be quite hard sometimes and you know sometimes if we have got a, a group in or whatever and I'm I'm feeling a bit tired you know I'm sort of there kind of rallying myself going right you know I've just got to kind of rally myself and usually within about five minutes I'm in it you know because I feel the energy and and that's that's what's really nice too you know you feel there's an energy exchange so as much as I'm giving information and trying to kind of show people and this and that and the other I can feel it coming back to me so it becomes this sort of cyclone where we're just feeding off each other's energy and sometimes it doesn't have to be discussed it's just there you know you can almost see kind of you know chests and hearts open to 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 what it is that they're experiencing and that really is just the wonder of nature and to see people connect with the land on that way you know, we can kind of go into a tour, you know, just thinking, oh, my energy's low. And then you come out of it three years, three, three hours later and you're like, yes, you know, so so that definitely helps. Because I think, again, just to that point, again, one of the things that I think is very easy to do in farming and crofting is to to kind of just do your own thing, you know, and we've done that. You just do your own thing and that can be quite isolating. So whenever you expand that out and you share that in a way where you're being honest and open, our experience is that that has come back tenfold in a really positive way. So so that that helps keeping us motivated, too. And Lynn, you talked um, earlier about kind of using social media and all those kind of things. Has that helped you create a kind of community that you can feed off even when because you don't do tours and courses? tours and courses all year but have has that has that kind of online community kind of come together that you can kind of feed off and share stuff all year that kind of gives you that energy maybe when in the short winter days when you're like oh it's not stop raining for a week and 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 <laughs> yeah yeah no it's it's a really good question and I think you know social media is has been a really powerful tool for for many people um, it is a tool, so it's something that you have to make work for you. You don't work for it. And I say that from experience of working for it rather than, you know, using it as a tool. But now it's we've got it again, it's it's one something that, you know, we use to share information or experiences or stories, um, not for kind of clickbait. Um so so that's been a really positive thing about social media is that we've 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 got a platform to do that. Um and I think as well, yeah, it is nice in, in times of the winter because you can reach out to people and share share stories. And I think people get a lot of information from that. But equally, um, you know, in the context of the winter, one of the things that we've really 
again embraced with this way of living and working is seasonality. So summer is busy, it's full, it's long days, it's courses, it's whatever else, it's harvest. Winter is just a period of um, hibernation. So sometimes that's actually when I take a social media break, you know, I'll take a, a month off and I'll just be like, you know what, we're just going to we're just going to close up for, for a month. and We're just going to hibernate. And I absolutely love it. I love that hibernation time. I love that that kind of rest and recovery. You know, I, I, I feel so privileged to live a life where I don't think, oh, I dread the winter. I'm like, bring the winter on. I am ready to, to be in winter. So so that's that's been really nice. But again, you know, from the from the engagement side, um, we can we can kind of um, use it and work with it in a way that works with that harmony, that works with that balance. So the summertime is busier, is more engagement, is more people in the winter. You're plugging yourself into the socket to recharge so you can manage it a little bit more. I love that. I love that you have carved out a life that you can hibernate. I wish I could hibernate all winter after a busy summer. Like, that would be so good. Just like batting down the hat. The other thing I was just going to ask about, kind of on the theme of community, is you obviously moved to Lindbreck. You've shared that, you know, you, you weren't from an agricultural background. And how did the community around Lindbreck, kind of beyond your kind of dodgy, um, dodgy fence that was roughly marking out your croft how did they react and respond to you guys kind of moving in and and how has that changed over over time yeah no it's it's a really nice question because um you know we have a few kind of immediate farming neighbors and um you know from day one they've just been absolutely superb and I think on reflection one of the reasons why they've been so great is because we reached out to them to ask for advice and help and guidance because at that point we really didn't have a clue what we were doing. So we would ask them all, you know, what, what, what would you do with this field? You know, what, what do you think we should do with, you know, what animals should we get? You know, all that kind of thing. Um, so I think that that helped because what we definitely weren't doing was coming and going, oh, and you should do this and you should do that because we didn't know. Um, wider a field. Um, it, it's interesting. I, I, I still don't really know what a lot of our kind of, not immediate neighbours, but local farmers think of what they we do. I think they're definitely interested in what we do. I think there's it's peaked interest. Um, I think, um, yeah, I I, I think that there's probably a, a a mixture. Some people will think, oh, you know, they're just sort of lifestylers doing that kind of thing, playing around. Some I think really see genuinely that we're trying to create a proper, you know, sort of little rural business that's feeding people um yeah I don't know but everybody's really nice to our faces so that's, that's the, as long as they're nice to your faces then it's fine isn't it I know um I know somebody who farms kind of um in the east of the country uh, and he uh, takes a regenerative approach and he said you know you see them kind of peering over the fences and like looking at what you're doing but not coming to ask the question so he's hosted a few events to try and get them to kind of come and see what they, what's what they're doing yeah nice nice yeah no and that's a really good way to do it yeah I would like to talk about your book our wild farming life which you released last year and going back to how honest you've been throughout this process the book is it's a searingly honest insight into everything that you've done and I think you're a really natural storyteller and it's beautifully written. 
but what was it what was it like writing it and what was it like putting so much of yourselves out into the world in a book obviously you've done um you know our farming life and things but what was it like putting it all down on paper the challenges that you faced and the experiences that you'd had and the journey that you'd been on um was there a degree of vulnerability about putting that out into the world yeah definitely um I mean, so sort of going back to the story of how the book came about. So we were approached by by Chelsea Green, who's the the publishing uh, house that, um, that 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 produced the book. Uh, back in, I think it was just it was it wasn't that long after lockdown actually, the first lockdown. And uh, they approached us about writing a book, and uh, yeah, we did. We kind of went back and forth for a little while, and we, then we thought, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. And we gave them a little bit of sample writing and they they were like, yep, you can write a book. So or you, you can write anyway. So um, that started a process of, right, you know, we were given a deadline. I think it was March, end of March 2021 20, was the first deadline, I think. And um, so we spent all I'd spent all winter writing it because I've written it. Basically, Sandra kind of edited it. So it's all kind of written in my voice. And um, I think we did about 10 10 edits and then we sent it into the publishing house and had this kind of toe curling meeting with the with the uh with the editor who just went no this isn't gonna work and you just think oh my god um because you like literally poured everything into it but funny um so so sort of in synopsis i'd basically written it almost like a series of essays because i've only ever written kind of academic documents but in the past from being at uni and her feedback was you need to be more honest. Not that we weren't being honest in the first draft, but more, I would say, not necessarily honest with content, but honest with the writing. You know, I'd written it in a way of, this is how it should be, rather than writing how I'm speaking to you here today. So after a month of licking our wounds, um, I just thought, right, I'm going to go for it. And I think this was the beginning of March, no, sorry, the beginning of May 2021. And we've been given the end of July 2021 for the for the second draft. So it was a really tight turnaround. And I basically rewrote about 80% of the book. And what I did was I just, uh, the editor gave us some notes to help us guide us. But I just basically read the book and went, how would I, how would I tell this story as if I was sharing it with you as I'm talking? And that's really how the whole book was rewritten um so so and and yeah I mean I think there's probably there's some stories that went in that came out again <laughs> um there's some that went in that we sort of bit our nails about and went let's just leave it um because I think you know that honesty is so important for for people to engage with and to connect with um so 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 it just sort of evolved it, it, it just sort of evolved like that and then obviously it came to you know, uh, last year um, when the kind of promotion, the main promotion around the book was happening. And that was quite a that was quite an unnerving time because we were working with the publishing house and they had a they had a, a sort of a publicist who was working with us. And, you know, we were having to do an article. We had to do an article for The Telegraph magazine. And, you know, it, it became quite a that became a kind of a, an exciting but almost a bit of a frightening time because you sort of felt like there was this big kind of media kind of machine behind you. Um, but you were sort of almost throwing yourself to the, yeah, throwing yourself in the pit where, you know, the media does what the media does. So, so that was a bit unnerving, but fortunately it was all really positive. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think it's, it's been sort of, yeah, most people that have read it seem to have liked it. So we're pleased about that. And it's another way of, of getting it out to a bigger audience who we never could have reached before. 
Yeah, and you do a lot of speaking and things now as well, don't you? I think I read somewhere that you'd um, uh, you'd done a conference and you'd done a, a talk to about five hundred people. Um, is that something that you always envisage yourself doing? I mean, how has your kind of confidence developed over this whole process? Yeah, I mean, I'll talk to anybody that wants to talk to me, really. I mean, I think it's probably in my Irish blood. Um, but yeah, so that was 20, 2019. I spoke at a, a conference of, of 500 people. And I don't know, I guess I'm very fortunate in that it just doesn't really generally phase me. Um, and um, and and yeah, I'm, I'm always quite happy to, to talk to anybody about it, uh, especially if I think it's going to be a way that's going to encourage more positive dialogue and a way that's going to um, empower more people and educate them in 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 what we do in in the message of what I believe is truly regenerative farming which you know again you asked me you know at the start you know about what I see about rewilding um you know and I said it's all about people I would say actually the same is about regenerative agriculture really it's all about people it's about you know reconnecting with the land it's about producing food and by harnessing the true natural abundance of nature which is you know i always say it's the most efficient system you know we're pretty smart as people right we're pretty smart as a human race um but we're not smarter than nature and we try to outsmart nature you know we try to create uh, situations or develop technologies that we we perceive as making what we do more efficient but we're never more efficient than nature and we're never more productive than nature so i think the true crux of regenerative agriculture to me is relearning how to truly interact with the land and you know enact the abundance of food that we need to survive out of that in a way where everything else is thriving so yeah i i i'll quite happily talk to anybody any day about that <laughs> and how do you strike a balance between wanting to spread this message and i'm assuming having a lot of opportunities and being invited to present your ideas and your experiences to a lot of people how do you balance that with wanting to get the message out there and actually what you need to do on the croft so i think uh, in part it's kind of self-regulating um and in part it's self-management so i'd say the self-regulation side is that you know i would say earlier on uh, in when we were doing what we were doing there was more i guess we we there was more kind of people looking to, to speak to us uh, now that I would say more people are doing or practicing or transitioning to regenerative agriculture the pool has opened up um, so so we, we we don't really get um, you know kind of inundated like you know we're not sort of constantly in this kind of like tsunami of information which is great because there's more people out there to talk about it more which is brilliant um, so in part, it's self-regulated, I think, as the movement has grown. And then in part, it's been our own yeah, self-management um, because, you know, at the end of the day, um, the whole reason why we moved to Limbrek to do what it is that we're doing was about quality of life. It was about, you know, li living a good life, not using that as a as a naive uh, unachievable but actually saying well no I actually want to live a good and happy life a healthy life so um, we've had to learn uh, and still learning how to um, manage that in a way where you're running you know you're making enough money to pay the bills you're growing your own food uh, you're earning you know any extra income that you need to from other sources um, but that you're waking up every day and going well this is pretty awesome um, so we've had to learn how to say no to things. We've had to learn how to prioritize tasks, you know, um, 
prioritize projects and take more rest. You know, I, I think anybody that works in farming and crofting knows that one of the most important things that you need to do to your land, uh, to your animals, is give them rest. You know, rest the land so that it can recover. <clears throat> We're terrible at doing it to ourselves. We're terrible at giving ourselves rest time. And that's one thing that we've really worked on, particularly in the last few years, has been taking time off during the week, um, taking holidays, you know, actually physically leaving uh, the place, letting somebody else look after it for us and having some downtime. And I think that's really important. Taking holiday must be one of the most difficult things, leaving basically your baby in the hands of somebody else. And I think, you know, one of the things, I mean, even like we find it hard going away. We've got like chickens, bees and the vegetable garden. And we went on a holiday and uh, Gary's like leaving the people who are looking after our house. Detailed instructions on time and quantity of watering. And like, you know, <laughs> and we still came home and the chickens had no water. And we were like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> anyway, they were all they're all fine. Okay, We've still got, still got all the chickens. But, you know, but it's that leaving that control, which probably does make it hard to then develop a work life balance. And I, I mean, it's obviously been a challenge. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know. As I keep saying to you, you know, we've still not nailed this. We're still working on it. But I do really see the value in it. And I think, you know, we started off just trying to take some more day trips, you know, so that you can still do the chores in the morning and then you can do the chores in the evening. And even just eight hours off, you know, you go away for a nice coffee, you maybe get a scone, you have a walk somewhere. I mean, that is transformational in itself. Um, but then making the leap to actually leaving, um, that was only something that we really managed to start from last year. And it was finding somebody who we really trust to look after the place um, and, um, and, and, and just, yeah, really kind of prioritizing that, do you know what? It, I, I, do, I truly believe that if your farm or your croft is truly resilient, you can leave it and come back to it by giving somebody instructions that will not mean that uh, it's too difficult to look after. If it's so difficult to look after it, then it's not resilient. Because at any point in your life, you can get sick, you can get you know, run over by a bus, whatever. Um, so your farm has to be resilient and that comes from how it's run. It has to be efficient, it has to be easy, it has to be straightforward, it has to be harmonious. So actually, I think that's one of the biggest challenges is getting it to a point where it's fine, you know, it's okay. Um, it's you that's the problem. It's not the farm or the croft. And that's the biggest, that's the hardest challenge to overcome. So, um, you know, we, 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 we do struggle, you know, to leave it whenever we're, you know, it's the day before and you're just thinking, is it worth it? You know, is it really worth it? Um, and then, you know, you come back and it takes about a week to kind of get back into things. But you just feel that that time away is so nutritious um you know when you're you know last year we went to Switzerland for a week say with Sandra's family and and that was the first time I went away and I thought you know what I don't want to even know what's happening there because I'm not there I, I don't I don't even want to know and there was one time because Sandra's brother uh, lives on site and there was one time we called them and I was just kind of ha hankering in the back of the room going I don't want to know <laughs> you know <laughs> it I just don't want to know so so that was so healthy so we try and then, you know, make nowadays that, we, you know, we get at least a week, a year away. We get some weekends away. We get some day trips. 
it's it's so critical it's so critical it's 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 so important and are there any other um big challenges you've faced that you've not touched on that you think we should talk about i mean charlotte mentioned the word borehole when we were talking oh lord the water (laughs) well no it's a good it's a good um yeah i mean water (laughs) why would you mention that charlotte that's me sorry um yeah no it's um it's water who thought that you would move to scotland and water would be an issue and that's that's one of our biggest challenges and it's always a constant thought you know every year we're like where else can we put a water but where else can we harvest water from where else can we store water um that to me is pretty bonkers and a little bit worrying to be honest with you that we can be in the northeast of scotland and we can have wells run dry um you know that didn't happen According to the local folks, you know, that didn't happen 30, 40 years ago. In part, it's this cha- this change in weather patterns where we're, you know, seeing longer periods of drier weather. But also it's the fact that we're getting less so in the winter. So we're not getting the snow melt that would have happened, which would have gradually kind of fed, you know, groundwater systems. Um, so that's a big obsession of ours is water retention. Um, and, and, and I'd say the other the other kind of biggest challenge has just been finance you know, has been financing all of this. Uh, so it's been financing what we need to get, what we needed to get set up. And so we were really lucky to access some of the, you know, the rural payments funding for that kind of thing. Um, but then it's also been keeping it going as well. Uh, you know, subsidies exist for a reason. They exist because of the the cost of food is is, is less than what it costs to produce. And so, you know, you're, you're kind of battling in that system um to try and not just kind of get it set up but to try and keep it running as well so that's where for me i say you know farming with nature it's a very nice thing to say it's not just about the birds and the bees it's about the diversity in which your farm runs so i'm very much an advocate of a diversified farm uh leads to a diversified stream of income which leads to greater resilience so we have chickens we have pigs we have hens we have bees we we do courses, we do tours, you know, we have some off farm income, we do all sorts of things. And that to me is truly kind of about farming with nature. So that's the other big challenge that I would say. And again, I think that's pretty endemic in farming. It's really trying to see how you can, how you can make it pay and not charge so much for your produce that people just simply won't buy it. And that's the other thing in all this, isn't it? That you, your passion for ma- allowing people to kind of access these foods also means that you're not going to be the people who are going to charge extraordinary quantities for a carrot do you know like it's it's that balance isn't it that you want people to have that passion have those experiences but also you have to run a financially financially viable business for you to be able to stay doing what you're doing at Limbrek and for it to you know for you to see the benefits in 25 30 years like you like you shared yeah absolutely and and I think as well it's it's kind of taking that sort of fact about the challenges of making, you know, something pay whenever you're trying to produce food and then using that as an opportunity to when people are on site is to, you know, talk about food and say, you know, whenever you think about, you know, let's say this tomato, you know, for example, you know, tomato is full of polyphenols. Polyphenols are its defense mechanisms, which help to kind of keep it safe from pests and diseases. You know, whenever you eat one of those from an organic system, you know, it's up to 40% higher in these polyphenols. You put that into your body, you're putting all that goodness, all that defense mechanism into your body. How much is that worth to you? How much is that of value to you? So therefore, how much of your hard-earned money are you willing to spend on that? as a form of 
medicine as a form of direct health into your body, which feeds your gut microbiome, which feeds your mental well-being, how much is that of value to you? And all of a start, all of a sudden you start to have these conversations where you're like, huh, maybe actually investing in food to to give me all of that isn't actually such a such a bad investment to make. And maybe I'm willing to invest a little bit more in it in terms of what I grow myself or in terms of what I buy on the on the on the, on the you know in the shelf at, at the supermarket. And that that is how you change the system. It's not from the ground up. It's from the consumer back, I think. It's it's how you, it's, you, you win those hearts and minds. So you've recently had the opportunity to mentor others through the Farm Advisory Service. What's that been like for you? Oh, my goodness. We absolutely love it. In fact, going forward, it's something we really want to do a lot more of. So, yeah, the opportunity that's available through the Farm Advisory Service is absolutely mind-blowingly brilliant. Uh, whereby you know farms and crofts can apply for up to four days of our time uh, that's paid through the farm advisory service and um, yeah we have just we've we I think we've got about four or five active mentees at the minute uh, so people with everything from you know sort of small farms maybe 11 12 acres up to 20 to you know larger larger land holdings 100 100 acres um, and it's been incredible. It's been an opportunity for us to get lots of little day trips because we travel all around Scotland to go and visit people, which is brilliant. Um, but we get to use our experience to help them figure out what it is that they want to do. And actually, a lot of it starts with, you know, why are you here? Why are you doing what you're doing? How, how is it you want to feel every morning when you wake up? You know, so what can we then when you when you figure all that out, how can we then help you develop? a way you know, a farming or a crofting model to make sure that you're catering for that so a really truly sustainable regenerative one so you know you're looking at different food production systems from anything from cattle or sheep or pigs or whatever to growing your own food to growing it at scale and really using all of that to to create a truly harmonious little kind of successful business so we, we've just been loving that um, and as I say that's definitely something we're really keen to do more of. And I mean, seven years ago, did you ever envisage that you'd now be mentoring others in what you do yourselves now? <laughs> no, because seven years ago, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. I mean, we had a vague kind of trajectory. We had a vague kind of, you know, I think seven years ago, actually, at, at, at pretty much exactly this time, I was writing our first kind of business plan which was to apply for the first kind of grant funding that we were going for so it was all very much pie in the sky it was all very much you know this is the ideal um and and really I think honestly it's not really changed that much you know the, the details have changed but actually what we set out to do seven years ago whenever we just moved here um we're kind of doing uh, and that's really that's really cool to reflect on because in spite of the fact that none of it was really kind of planned, um, because all of it came from our gut and our heart, it, it's kind of still on the same road. So that's quite fun. That's quite fun to see. And the big question is, what comes next for you? Is there a second book maybe? Or have you got some other exciting plans? What comes next? We're chilling out. We're chilling out. <laughs> no, um, no. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we, we're, we're so we're very lucky. We've got ourselves to a point where we've got a lot of our infrastructure in place. You know, OK, we've, we've just built a second poly club, but nothing, nothing else major in that route uh, from from a kind of a practical level in terms of the, the sort of the farming and crofting side. 
um, we're, we, we can't stop ourselves from planting more trees. Um, our, our, our big kind of future, go, go, our big focus going forward is planting more fruit trees. So creation of more fruit, more orchards, soft fruits, they grow really well in this area and they can produce abundance of food. So the vision is that we'll have these sort of connected habitat systems of uh, fields, uh, kind of wood pasture fields, uh, with pockets of orchards where you've got cattle moving through, you know, it's the large herbivores in the landscape. You have, you know, really diverse woodlands where you have pigs snuffling, you know. So that's the kind of the landscape that we're looking to create. So more fruit tree planting, more fruit bush planting, uh, really kind of up that food production side of things. And then I would say from a sort of a, a, a sort of a personal side, um, definitely we really enjoy the mentoring. Uh, we feel that we have a lot of learning to share with people so we really like to develop that a lot more uh, we enjoy running our our courses our summer courses so we just run uh, two of our week-long ones a year uh, so we hope to keep kind of doing that and also just working on our own time you know every year we finesse it a little bit better you know we get a little bit more efficient in what we're doing we carve a little bit more time out for ourselves you know personally as a couple for friends uh, for holidays uh, so really prioritizing all that as well. Um, I can't quite bring myself to write another book just now, but <laughs> but you know never say never. But uh, it's it's not it's not it's not immediately on the cards. It's just it's just it's just living. Lynn, one of the uh, well, a question that we ask all our guests and what we end on is, what advice would you give to the next generation of rural women in Scotland? What was yours be? Um, so I think. Um, my bit of advice, which I've always tried to follow myself, is just whenever you, whenever you are, whenever you've got a big decision to make, uh, whenever you've got a problem to resolve, whenever you're faced with a challenge that just seems kind of so insurmountable that you don't really know how to overcome it, is follow your gut. That that's what I've always tried to do in life. Uh, your gut always tells you what's right. Your head can always tell you what's the you know what's the most practical solution what's the what's the most sensible solution what's the you know what 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 what's all of that um but if it doesn't align with what your gut says just don't do it that would be my best advice that i would give to somebody i love that what a way to end just like follow your gut particularly after all that talk about like food and how how good that is for your like for your well-being and all of that so i totally totally love that as a way to as a way to end so thank you so much lynn for joining us today and sharing your stories experiences and lessons yeah no thank you so much for the conversation uh for inviting me onto the woman and wellies podcast it's been really great uh fun to chat with you guys today if you want to connect with lynn and see what's going on in the croft on social media you'll find all the details in the show notes Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on Instagram at Women and Wellies Podcast to stay up to date with all the latest news. And you can email us with any questions on womeninwellyspodcast at gmail.com and we'd love it if you could leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time.